You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. Hey everyone, welcome back to Faith and Other Oddities, the show where Emily and I read the Bible, record it, and distribute it into the wild. Um, hopefully uh, it's reaching some people out there and you're enjoying it. I assume if you're hearing these words, you're at least experiencing it. So anyway, um, I have no idea where I'm going. I'm a little sleepy this week. Um, and uh, I was sick last week and I'm still kind of getting over it. So um, that being said, it. I, I think uh, we should probably just get on with it. We've had some technical issues, and uh, hopefully we can get through recording this time. <laughs> At the very least, we can promise you an experience. We may not know where to grade that on a scale of 1 to 10, but it will be real. Uh, so one, one of the anyway. experiences of all time. <laughs> uh, yeah, thank you, Dad, for ambiguity being our friend. <laughs> so uh anyhow uh we we are on our i think our second week of first kings eight verse three, and we were stopping to look at the fact that the writer actually tells us that this is the month of Ethanim, and then it tells us it's the seventh month, and we looked last week about why this was important. we talked about um what feast. Uh, this could possibly be referring to because it happens in the feast. And of course, there's at least three major feasts that happened in Ethanim, uh, uh, or if you want to use the Hebrew name, uh, Tishri. And so, uh, you know, talking about which one it could be. And, you know, if you're a Heiser fan or you, you follow Heiser's work, then the minute I said Tishri, you probably started to geek out just a little bit because. Uh, that's kind of a big part of, uh, well, chapter four of reversing Hermon. Uh, that's, you can't see, Nathan can't see me this week, but nope. anyway, I showed the book, uh, where he talks about the dating of Christ's birth and he gets into all the technical aspects of, uh, po- possible reasons why we should consider Tishri one being the date of Christ's birth or, uh, and why, um, that's a significant date. And it falls all in line with what we have uh, on, we're having, still having technical difficulty, but I think we're back. Uh, yeah, we're back. It falls right Keep in going. line with what, okay, with what we have here in First Kings. And so uh, I want to read a real short quote from Heiser. Uh, it's on page 66 of Reversing Hermon. It says, the Feast of the Trumpets or Rosh Hashanah. Uh, or Tishri 1, whichever way you want to refer to it, was also the day that many ancient kings and rulers of Judah reclaim, uh, um, reckoned as their inauguration day of rule. This procedure was followed consistently in the time of Solomon, Jeremiah, and Ezra. So this this date has been verifiable back to the time of Solomon as very important, not only religiously, but also politically, which makes sense because in it, ancient Israel, you didn't have that distinction between political and religious. Uh, you don't have that separation of church and state. It's the same thing, which, you know, 
as much as we've grown up in the idea of church and state being separate, um, there's part of me that thinks maybe it might be easier if they weren't. Um, but anyway, that's a whole different uh, discussion. So Heiser goes on in uh, reversing Hermon to make the case of Jesus' birth, like I said, being on Tishri 1, which at that year would have fallen on September 11th, which, I mean, right there's, wow, uh, who among us doesn't have some kind of visceral reaction to that date? And then he connects it back to Noah. And when he connects it back to Noah, the flood, the son of God, which makes Jesus' birth date a, a, a theological statement, which makes sense. I mean, we should expect Jesus' advent, Jesus' life to be nothing but a one huge theological statement. So even in what we would might think of as quote-unquote insignificant details, uh, you, you should kind of expect it. Uh, so, but I don't want to get caught too caught up in that. Heiser has episodes on that. Um, he has it in his book. He has blog post. So you don't need me to, to explain it to you. Uh, so for our discussion on first Kings eight, two, we're just going to focus on two points that Heiser makes because they, they do add to our understanding of first Kings eight, two or eight, three. It says, Tishri is the time the kings were inaugurated. So, in other words, this is when the kings ascended their thrones. This is when they claimed power. And, um, you know, a symbolic throne is exactly what Solomon creates here in the temple. It's on those outstretched wings of the cherubim with the Ark of the Covenant being the footstool. So God was being enthroned in this sacred space. Um. Two, the second point that um, Heiser makes is Tishri is a time about creation being renewed. Well, we've seen in all the imagery and all the various things that were created and crafted for the temple, this theme of creation is, it's throughout. You're supposed to be thinking of the garden. You're supposed to be reminded of that first garden uh, being a temple, a place where God walked with Adam and Eve. And so that's very important that we actually consider creation in regards to um in regards to the temple and so on Rosh Hashanah or on uh Tishri 1 one of the things that we're paying attention to is the fact that um this is a reaffirmation that God is the king and creator of the universe and so to have this is is very important. And, and Heiser actually points out, and we talked last week about the date in Exodus being the first of the new year for, for the Israelites and how there was that debate in the tractate Rosh Hashanah, which you can find online if you want to read it. It's like 12 pages long. It's not, not very long. Um, my dog just moved my stool completely over to the other side of the desk. Anyway, <laughs> uh, the, the date um, of Rosh Hashanah actually predates the date found in Exodus. Exodus was something new, which makes sense because Exodus is a redemptive time. Exodus is about being reclaimed. And so to have a new new year in order to celebrate that event is actually very fitting where the this original new year, um, you know, harkens back to that time prior to um prior to uh, the need for redemption, before the, the relationship had been broken. So in a lot of ways, Solomon's temple, it echoes creation, it echoes the flood, but it also foreshadows Christ in the, his future reign on the earth. 
It, it's a celebration of the past through the symbolisms of creation and the affirmation of God being present uh, in the ongoing rule of Israel. But it's also the anticipation of the future when God would rule over all the earth again, when he would be manifest, physically manifest, which we see a glimpse of that, which we're going to get back to later. And um, so when the writer of First Kings includes this little detail, and it says the feast of the month, Ethanim, which is the seventh month, it, it makes certain that no one misses the point that you aren't going to, to be able to ignore the fact that this is every aspect of the temple is a lesson right up to the time and date the doors open. This is important. This is significant. And if it's that significant with the temple, then why wouldn't it be that significant with the birth of Christ himself? So we can kind of see how the, the date and the time help us understand and would have helped the original audiences to understand how important this building is, not just as a symbol or a place for people to gather to worship their God, but as a place where God would actually meet with humanity. And that's the whole point of the Bible story, is that sacred space where God and humanity can function together. And I think we forget that so often, that it's, it's not about some kind of, oh, everything's going to be good and wonderful, and we're all going to get to be these soft little cream puffs floating around on you know, whipped cream clouds. That, that's, that's not what it's about. It's so we can join with God in fulfilling his intentions for all of creation, not just this earth, but all of creation. So I, I, just, I, I love that imagery, and I think we, we need to grab hold of that. So, um, anyhow, oh, I'm sorry. That was verse three. I kept wanting to say it was verse three. That was verse two. Now we're moving to verse three. I need glasses because I looked at my Bible and the, the, the numbers for the verses are too small for me to read now. <laughs> so, uh, verse three says, and all the elders of Israel came and the priests took up the ark. Verse four says, and they brought up the ark of the Lord, the tent of meeting and all the holy vessels that were in the tent. And the priest and the Levites brought them up. So all the priests were Levites. So let's kind of clear this up because this is like the, the gymnastics that people do in commentaries sometimes just baffles me because sometimes I think scholars overcomplicate things. They, they try to um, answer questions that nobody has. Or they, they take the most indirect route to answering a question that they think people should have. And so there's like some debate when it says, you know, that the priest took up the ark. Um, and we know that the Levites are supposed to be the ones who carry the ark. We, we, we've already discussed that. We saw that very, very vividly when David tried to move the ark. Well, here's the thing. All the priests are Levites. They all come from the tribe of Levi. So to have the priest carrying the ark is not some kind of uh, violation of God's law. Now, it does seem that there is a specific family within the Levite tribe that has been entrusted with carrying the ark. And if that's the case, this is probably the ones who were carrying the ark at that point in time. The writer just doesn't include that detail. Um, but. This is not a problem to have priests carrying the ark. This is who should be carrying the ark. Um, now, 
the rest of the tribe, the non-Levite tribes, because there is a delineation here in these verses because it says that um, the Levites brought them up and it's referring to the objects that were part of the the um, tabernacle setup. The Levites grabbed that. Those are probably the Levites who are not priests because while all priests are Levites, not all Levites are priests. Some of them have been disqualified for whatever reason. Some of them, it's not their rotation. It's not their turn. Uh, some of them may have chosen other endeavors because there were enough priests to fulfill the needs of the, the worship system. It's not, I, I don't understand, like, I, and I know y'all haven't seen, like, all the stuff that was written about this, but it's like, guys, this is not a hard thing to solve. <laughs> and I don't understand when people want to complicate it. So the the tent of meeting, um, it, it was the tent constructed by Bezalel in the wilderness. Um, now, this is possible. This literally is. I mean, yes, it's been hundreds of years later. Yes, it's just a tent. <clears throat> it's possible in the sense that there were um, you know, if one of the sides was ripped or some of the fabric became a little worn or faded due to the sunlight, which you would expect uh, because the dyes weren't high quality dyes, uh, the sun would have been unrelenting. And so, you know, if you just replaced that part of the temple as it wore out and then it, when the next piece needed to be replaced, you, or the tabernacle, you would replace the next piece. And so it would still work as a whole with what was already existing. And yes, over the years, you might have had actually several new, uh, new temples. If you looked at how many times each piece, or tabernacle, sorry, tabernacles had been replaced. You know, how many times did you have to replace that pole? And how many times did you have to redo um, that curtain? Okay, yeah, it's not exactly the same parts that were there with Moses, but there's still the 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 basic structure has has remained intact in some form from the time of Moses, and so uh, this this would have gone all the way back to the Exodus right after um, Moses being at Sinai, and so this is what they're bringing up, and they're bringing up all of those things that Bezalel made. They're bringing up any of the uh, things like you know. We know that David had uh, stored Goliath's sword at the tabernacle at one point. Any of those items had been dedicated uh, to God that were housed at the tabernacle. All of these things would have now moved because we're going to move to a central location of worship. Verse 5, it says, And King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who had assembled before him were with him before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and oxen that they could not be counted or numbered. Um, we've got some pretty big numbers of how many times, you know, how many animals Solomon sacrifices in other areas of this book. And so the fact that we have these really large numbers in other areas, and this exceeds that, this goes beyond that. Uh, we're talking tens of thousands of animals. It, it, we're, this is a massive number of animals. Uh, Art Scroll, in their commentary, they claim that this is just like a spontaneous gathering of the people. The people realize what Solomon's getting ready to do, and they just show up with all of these uh, sacrifices. Um, that this outpouring um, of, of praise and worship for God is the completion of the temple. This is, uh, you know, as far as like the human side of it, it's not until, like we were talking last week, it's not until those people walk in and, and actually engage and bring their sacrifices is the temple complete, uh, at least on the human side, because God still has a few things to do. 
So verse six says, then the priest brought in the ark of the covenant of the Lord to its place in, th- in the inner sanctuary of the house of the, of, in the most holy place underneath the wings of the cherubim. For the cherubim spread out their wings over the place of the ark, so the cherubim overshadowed the ark and its poles. And the poles were so long that the end of the poles were seen from the holy place before the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen from the outside. And they are there to this day. So um, evidently uh, the ark was before the cherubim that stood either side in front of the Holy of Holies. And the, the poles extended beyond the curtains. And so they could be seen inside the sanctuary. You had to enter into the sanctuary. Then you could see the poles, but you couldn't enter the Holy of Holies to see the ark. And by allowing the poles to be seen, to be witnessed, even though the people couldn't see the ark itself, this was evidence that the ark was still there. It's kind of that seen and unseen thing at the same time. And it, it really is some powerful uh, symbolism. Uh, so it's, it's a reminder that the ark has not been removed. It's evidence that it's still present. And it, and it really is kind of this interesting picture of God in relationship to humanity. It's like we see the poles. We don't see the ark. We, we see evidence that he's here, but we don't see that place where he really, you know, where he dwells so mm-hmm. completely that we can actually witness him. And so um, the, the other part of that symbol, which is really great, you have to go into the sanctuary. You have to start drawing near to him first in order to see that he's there. You can't be outside the temple and see. You, to, to witness that and to experience that sight, you have to actually come into that place of worship. And so I actually think it's a, it's a really great picture that doesn't receive enough attention because it, it just kind of illuminates the, the, um, the system and the purpose of the system in a really powerful way, and, but while still being very simplistic. And sometimes the, these, these simple illustrations are the most powerful ones because they, they, they don't require a lot of, you, you don't have to have 20 layers of context to get it. You can just engage it. So, um, verse nine says that there was nothing in the ark except the two tablets of stone Moses put there at Horeb, where the Lord made the covenant with the people of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. Now, I was always taught that uh, the Ark of the Covenant contained three things, and it contained the, ta- the tablets, Aaron's rod that budded, and then the container of manna. manna. Started to say that with a real oaky accent. But, um, however, when I read what was on the page and uh, not what I had been taught, then uh, I, I see that these items are in the most holy place. They're, they are not in the ark. They're before the ark. They're, they're by the ark. And so the, um, the entire uh, Torah that Moses wrote, is in De- it's referred to in Deuteronomy uh, 31.24, it says that he placed it before the ark or by the ark. Um, and we get this idea of it being inside the ark in Hebrews um, later on. So there's some question and debate on how accurate our translations, our English translations of the book of Hebrews is, or did, you know, the writer of Hebrews have some kind of misperception? What, what happened there? Why does the writer of Hebrews say these things are in the ark whenever clearly here it says it's just the tablets, there's nothing else? And so, um, you know, to me, it makes more sense 
to have them around and by the ark rather than in the, the ark. And this is a bit of a setup for future events in the book. Um, presumably these items, Hector, sorry, presumably these items should have been in the tabernacle, but that doesn't seem to be the case. Um, because they're never mentioned, not in the book of Kings, not in the book of Chronicles. We don't know where the, the, the rod wound up. Well, they're just, the, they're just um, still going, aren't they? Oh my goodness. Yeah. They, you know, I've got a teenager as a dog right now and everybody knows teenagers lose their mind. Uh, so, okay. They seem to have calmed down, <laughs> but, uh, except for Jackson and he's just a grumpy old man dog at this point. Uh, so anyway, it says that, um, you know, we, we don't know where these items wound up. That's what I was trying to say. Um, the, um, if they were there, they would have been part of the utensils that the, um, Levites took up to the temple. And, uh, this seems to have happened with the book of Deuteronomy because we know later on in the book of Kings, uh, what happens is they're doing some cleaning in the temple and they, they stumble across the book of Deuteronomy, which Moses, like I said, in, in the last part of Deuteronomy, it says Moses put the book by the ark. And so it's possible they were in the temple. It's just, they aren't specifically spelled out. And, um, I, I hope uh, that made sense because I got a little distracted by the dogs. So, um, I think I followed. Um, I'm trying not to chime in too much. Uh, it sounds like the signal's getting clearer, but I've been having some breaks every now and again. So sometimes I'm like, did she already cover the thing I was going to ask a question about? So we're, <laughs> we're fighting some, uh, some signal strength issues. And, uh, <laughs> uh, we, we've got fiber optic run to the highway. As soon as they connect us at the highway, we are like ready to rock and roll. So be praying that happens quickly. So, yeah, I, um, just, I just haven't got, yeah, I, I just haven't, uh, got a great signal and, so that, that's why I haven't been chiming in too much and, uh, you know, making sure I'm not interrupting you a whole lot because I don't know when you're in mid-sentence or not at this point. Oh, right. Well, I'm just glad it's kind of clearing up now. But yeah, um, so, and I, I knew that's what you're doing. Listeners may not have done. But anyway, uh, you know, the, the other option, and this is an option, and we have to accept this, is that you know, after 40 years of wandering around of 400 years of being moved from place to place during the time of the judges, that these items were lost. If they weren't specifically in the, in the ark, if they were just part of the tabernacle that was packed up, you know, broken down, packed up, moved to a new place, set up it, over and over again, things do get lost. So, um, and especially when you realize that, you know, sometimes the, these moves may have happened while there's, you know, people invading and attacking and we, we've got to hurry up and it, it's their life was not so simple. I mean, we, we as modern people come up with all these excuses about why we are not living our faith as well as we should, why we aren't honoring the symbols and the forms of our faith, uh, to the depth and, um, you know, it, 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 devoting as much time as we should, because, you know, we're busy. We, we, we have other obligations. Um, well, the people in ancient Israel were literally trying to stay alive. 
uh, you know, in the face of aggressor, aggressors who wanted to kill them and enslave them and to destroy everything they worked for. It was not like, you know, they woke up a Sunday morning and went, man, I shouldn't have gone to the football game last night. Now I'm just going to have to stay, stay home. That, that wasn't the same thing. Uh, so we, we need to need to respect the fact that they're human. And, you know, maybe if we're going to hold them to that high of a standard, we should be willing to hold ourselves to a similar standard. And, um, you know, unless somebody's coming at you with a sword, you need to be doing the right thing. Um, just a thought. So, um, but anyhow, um, the other thing that the only thing inside the art is the tablets. Just want to briefly mention this. I don't want to get into it because it's ridiculous. This is further statement that this is not some kind of ancient battery cell. There's some kind of ancient, you know, alien power source that had been bestowed to the children of Israel. It's not some kind of crazy laser weaponry. It's a box with two stone tablets in it. Any power that might have been associated with this symbol comes from the fact that God has claimed it is his. That's it. We don't need to try to figure out some kind of ancient alien technology to figure out why this was so important. It's so important because God decided it was important. That's all we got to have. I mean, are you sure it wasn't an anti-grav device? That's why the Ark was able to be carried so easily? Right? You know, sometimes I think... Well, no, what's funny about that is the answer is right there in the text. You were talking about how long the poles were. You couldn't actually see the arc, but you could see right. the poles. Like, if the poles are that long, that means you can get quite a few people on either side carrying it. And, and it's like, given the dimensions, I mean, I've been a pallbearer at a funeral. You get six right. people, you can carry something without a whole lot of trouble. I... I am fairly convinced that a lot of the people who make these kinds of wild claims about biblical things have never done any kind of practical work in their life. Uh, you, you know, I, and they've, they've never actually moved heavy objects. Right. Uh, they've, right. You know, they've never actually... Ward bronze. They've never actually worked with gold or silver. Uh, those kinds of things, because some of the stuff, um, it, it, it's crazy out there. So um, one of my sources I used on the thesis, and he talks about the, the tabernacle. I, I actually really recommend this book. It's called State of the Art. It's by um, Jean Edward Vaith, um, uh, gets it the right way, uh, From Bezalel to Maplethorpe. And um, Anyway, really great book. And he makes a really some really cogent arguments from a theological perspective. Mm-hmm. But one of the things he completely misses is as an artist what we read. Um and this just stuck out with me and I mean this is like a freebie so not part of the the program at all. But um he makes a statement that Bezalel could not add and he couldn't, uh, I forget exactly how he puts it, but basically that God gave such detailed commands about how the tabernacle was supposed to be created that 
Bezalel didn't impose any of himself on the tabernacle, which is ridiculous because he reads it and he sees this description as having all of these details and all these things that needed to be included. And so he thinks it's a complete list. As somebody who who has painted paintings, who does drawings, who, you know, who's worked with silver and worked with copper uh, and bronze, um, I look at that list and I go, there's a lot of information I would need to be sure I'm getting it right. Um, you know, the, what color blue? Do you know how many colors of blue there are? I'm sitting here looking at my computer monitor with what's on my screen and what I'm picking up behind me. And I see at least eight different shades of blue and that's without trying. Right. You know, <laughs> um, how, how exactly do you shape the wing of a cherubim? That has to be an inspired bit of knowledge mm -hmm. that that's not something when God says make cherubim. Well, who knows what a cherubim looks like? Or a cherub looks like it, it, it's so a lot of times when you have people and this is the point I'm trying to make when you have people commenting on concrete practical things that happen who have never worked with these materials or never worked in that field you know never put their hand to the plow so to speak which I've done that too um there's aspects and elements of the process that they don't understand that they completely miss. And so then they start trying to fill in this information with just ridiculous speculation that has no bearing in reality. And if they would just ask somebody who's done something along these lines, maybe not the exact same thing, but along these lines, they could understand what the Bible's trying to tell them and why the Bible doesn't provide all of these crazy conspiracy theory answers so um yeah just my little rant because i i think that's one of the things that we we miss in academia is we don't have a lot of people with practical knowledge in mm -hmm. these areas and you know i i honestly think you know if somebody was going to write a a book on um on the temple they need to go find a, bron a bronze foundry they need to go ask questions. They need to try to understand that process. Uh, they need to go find some place that does hand weaving and look at what it takes to run those looms. They, you know, all of these things, uh, candle making, actually see the process. Stop getting lost so you know in the, the ether uh, of what the 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 of what the, the item represents. Yeah, I mean, and don't get me wrong. I think that's important that we have that. But at the same time, you need to see how people were included. Because basically what boils down to is when we're talking like um, the inspiration of the Bible. Uh, and Heiser talks about how it's not automatic writing. You know, you see the personality. You see the personal experience of the writer showing through in the books that they wrote. And, you know, how God is, has, you know, um, is co uh, cooperating with, with humanity to make this a reality. That it's a divine human endeavor and it's not one or the other. And so, you know, why would the temple or the tabernacle be any different? The, the two of the, the, 
the tabernacle and the temple were supposed to be a visual representation to the people to teach these lessons, much like the stained glass windows of the European cathedrals were supposed to be. Mm-hmm. So we, we have to give space and credit to, to the artist. If the artist of the, of the cathedrals of Europe can be celebrated as, you know, having this great artistic skill, uh, skill, then we need to do the same for Bezalel. We need to do the same for Hiram. We need to do the same for everybody who is involved in the project. Um, so um, anyhow, now I'll get off my little high horse there because that's just, it's just, it's one of those things that bugs me. <laughs> and so I, I think it's kind of like you with people who do music in the church, but won't bother to learn how to use their tools. Uh, and won't become yeah. good at either the instrument or the audio devices that you play through and all of mm-hmm. that stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, yeah, figure it, it out, guys. Yeah, the, the guy who, 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 you know, can sit behind the soundboard and turn it on, but doesn't bother to, to learn how to EQ someone's voice so they actually come through a mix or anything like that. You know, the, those, yeah, those things bother me. I mean, they're... I... Uh, I, well, I, I, I have been I, at places I, I think, where I felt comfortable enough with certain sound guys to go back and be like, hey, can I, do you mind if I, <laughs> and in like 30 seconds, they're like, oh my gosh, I can hear the singer so much better. I'm like, yeah, you, exactly. But well, anyway, and I think I it goes back to part of the lessons that the temple and the tabernacle try to teach us. It's supposed to be done with excellence. Why? Because it's for the king. And, you know, I, I've been watching, um, just to give me my brain some space to breathe occasionally, I've been watching a lot of documentaries on just randomness. And so uh, one of the things I was watching was about some of the British royalty and, you know, looking at the bands that are present every time the king or queen went out, you know, that were just playing. And, and why? Why? Because the king is present. Well, that's the reason why you do things well with the temple and the tabernacle. The king is present. And, and mm-hmm. you, you know, if we've got an earthly king who demands this much fanfare and this much planning and, and just excellence in service, then we shouldn't expect anything less in the tabernacle and temple. Now, how do we translate that into the modern church? What does that look like? Mm-hmm. And maybe, you know, knowing how to run a soundboard is part of excellence in service. Um, you know, if you don't know and you're just doing the best you can, that's great. But try to find somebody who can help you or teach you. Mm-hmm. Look up a YouTube video. Google yeah. that. Yeah. Learn about game stages. It will help you a lot. Um, anyway. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, and the same thing can be said about lighting, uh, it, uh, the, uh, the way that the pews are set up or, you know, now we have chairs, you know, uh, I, I it, and this is where as an artist, I'm always kind of hovering on that edge of, uh, you know, how far do we take, uh, how far do we, we wor- spend our money in a building versus how much we, we give to the community? And, you know, maybe that's just something we have to prayerfully consider and discern as each local body. Um, because there is something to be said about walking into a beautiful building that's, that's been presented well, that invites you to, to, to worship in a whole new level. But um, anyway, before I get too lost. So last week we talked about how the glory of God descended and we, we talked about the Shekinah glory. And it sounds like 
Um, if you read here in First Kings, it sounds like they do all the stuff, and then you know they get everything in the temple, and basically, you know, God just descends pretty quickly. Uh, in Second Chronicles, there's an added detail, and I really, I, I kind of like this. And so, I mean, it doesn't matter if I like it or not, it's what the Bible says, but, you know, sometimes the two are the same. Uh, and this is in Second Chronicles 5, 10, and 11. It says, and uh, actually it's, yeah, it says, and when the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord, so that the priest could not stand. Oh, sorry. This is still in First Kings. Chapter 8, verses 10 and 11, says, When the priest came out of the holy place, the cloud filled the house of the Lord, so that the priest could not stand to the minister, because, could not stand to minister because of the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. So in Second Chronicles 5, it essentially tells you the same story, almost word for word. I mean, it's like a verbatim quote um, in uh, verses 10 through 14. But then, uh, or until we get to Verses 10 through 14. These are the verses from Chronicles I wanted to read. I wrote these notes a couple of days ago. Can you tell? Uh, so anyway, it says, uh, There was nothing in the ark except for the tablets that Moses had put there at Horeb, where the Lord made the covenant with the people of Israel when they came out of Egypt. So, hey, we, we got the same thing. We understand that this, is, this has been lifted straight from the book of Kings. Um, then it says in verse 11, when the priest came out of the holy place, for all the priests who were present had consecrated themselves without regard for division. Okay. Everyone who was a priest was participating, all hands on deck at this time, because we know that we had these crazy amounts of, of sacrifices going on. They couldn't even be counted. We need everybody working their butts off today is pretty much what it is. Um, and, you know, if you've ever been in the hustle and bustle of, of this kind of push time, to get something done. I mean, I, I think of when my days of working in a restaurant and how everybody just, they, they knew their job and they knew other people's jobs. So it didn't matter if, um, if somebody else couldn't get their stuff done, you just jumped in and did it because you had to keep the machine moving forward if you're going to provide a good experience for your guest. And so, um, you know, that's kind of an exhilarating environment to be in. But anyway, verse 12. And all the Levitical singers, Asaph, Heman, uh, Jedithum, uh, their sons, and the kinsmen arranged for in arrayed in fine linen with cymbals, harps, lyres, stood east of the altar with 120 priests who were trumpeters. And it was the duty of the trumpeters and the singers to make themselves heard in unison in praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. And when the song was raised with the trumpets and the other musical instruments in the praise to the Lord, for he is good, his steadfast love endures forever. The house, the house of the Lord was filled with a cloud. Verse 14. So the priest could not stand to minister because the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. So Chronicles makes it very clear that the glory of God descends as the singers and the trumpeters begin to give God praise. So this might actually be a clue as to which one of those feasts and confirm our previous speculation that Tishri uh, won Rosh Hashanah, the beginning of the New Year's, the Feast of Trumpets, was when the temple was inaugurated. So, um, but I do find it interesting. It's not until we have these public demonstrations of praise and worship that God's glory descends in the book of Chronicles. Because what do we hear in Psalms? 
God, you know, God is enthroned on the praise of his people. So it, it the, the Psalms actually kind of re, you know, reworks kind of this understanding that God's not just being enthroned in a building. He's actually being enthroned on the people in the building who are praising him. And so I mean, that, that's just a really great um, picture. And I always go back to that passage again. I know rabbit trails. This is what I've been doing all week is rabbit trails. Um, a lot of people contact me whenever they talk about spiritual warfare. They're facing some kind of spiritual warfare situation in their life. And they will tell me things like, Emily, you know, I prayed over the house. I commanded any kind of demonic or you know, dark spirit to leave. But it's still happening. It's still coming back. What do I do? And one of the things, one of the practices I have adopted in my own life is that whenever I've ever had to make those kinds of stands or, or, you know, deal with that kind of issue is this verse just stood out to me that, you know, God is enthroned on the praise of his people. The spiritual world, just like the physical world, abhors a vacuum. Something's going to fill that space. So whenever that you, you tell something evil or dark to get out, you need to invite God back into that space so, and fill it because you don't just leave it empty. Well, you know, what's what Jesus says, you know, if you, once you cast them out and they come back and they find the house has been cl- swept clean, but nothing's in it. Yeah, they're going to come back in. That's just how it works. So, you know, that's, that's the thing, you know, the, when I think this is a powerful image of how we should be dealing with spiritual warfare. If we want God to manifest himself, to be present, then we need to be actively praising and worshiping him. So if, you know, you have to confront something evil in your own life or your home, be sure to fill that space. And I mean, this isn't kind of like a witchcraft kind of thing or some kind of voodoo spell or quid pro quo that, that God owes you. It's the idea that you're rejecting the power of darkness and you are actively engaging and acknowledging that you are in submission to the king of the universe. And I I think that's very powerful. And unfortunately, I think a lot of times people just want the dark stuff to go away, but they really don't want God to come in and, you know, with all his luggage, because God brings a lot of luggage uh, to your home. Uh, So they just don't want that. And, you know, you got to choose. That, that spiritual area, um, whatever you want to call it in your, in your home and life, it's going to be filled with something. Mm-hmm. It's going to be sp- filled with light or darkness. You pick, but then be happy with your choice. So um, anyway, uh, I'm, I'm a little hard-nosed about this because I have so many people who just want a quick fix. Mm-hmm. Why? What? what, what does God owe you anything like that? I I mean, come on. Even if you are serving him perfectly, he still doesn't owe you any kind of quick fix. Well, I mean, and let's, and the same kind of thing goes on even not necessarily with, um, and I'm, I'm probably going to offend some people, but the same Uh-oh. kind of thing goes on with not necessarily just spiritual manifestations, but with people and bad, bad ideologies. Um, Look at how many people get so fixated on trying to use the book of Revelation to understand what's going on in the news. Right. And just fixating on, oh, well, this happened. This is, this is what happened in, you know, like how many, I mean, you know, and this is not a statement about should people get vaxxed, should people not get vaxxed. 
you know, work that out on your own. Um, do it prayerfully and do it honestly, whichever way you do it. Own but it. the number of people I have tried to sell me that, oh, well, do you, did you know that the vaccine's patent number is ends in 666? No, I didn't, because number one, I can look it up online. You look at the patent office, and it's obviously number one, false. And the other thing is, well, I guess John left a whole lot of other numbers off of the mark of the beast. I mean, you're like, ah, that's a lot to write every single time you got to go through it. We'll just put the last bit on. You know, that's... Well, and my favorite you know, is I'm sorry, the mark but, of the beast evidently needs a booster. Right. Yeah, that's the other part of it. But <laughs> I, mean, I, I just... To me, it's like, you know, I'm not trying to make a statement about whether or not it's good or bad, but if you're going to argue one way or the other, use do it truth. Well. Be yeah, honest about it. Do it well. It. Do it with integrity. Be- because, uh, if, because if you lie to me about one part of it, then I know that either one, you're getting all your information from a bad spot and you didn't fact check, or number two, you're deliberately trying to deceive me. Neither one of those is a good thing, and neither one of them help, helps anyone make an honest decision. That's Absolutely. all I'm going to say about Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Well, <laughs> well and, and, you know, and unfortunately, because we all kind of fly under this label Christian, whenever one of us does something either dishonest, knowingly or unknowingly, um, dishonest or fraudulent, or, you know, it makes all of us look bad. Mm-hmm. And so, and, you know, I think one of the things that we have to keep standing by is not everybody who calls themselves a Christian is a Christian. Right. Um. There are some people who claim to be Christian preachers that I'm looking at the fruits of their life, okay? I, I'm And I'm not saying they aren't saved, but they aren't showing the evidence of God being manifest in their life. Right. It's just not there. <clears throat> and so we, you know, when they teach things that are harmful, things that are patently false, things that are incomplete, that's the big thing they do. It's not necessarily they tell us a lie. They give us an incomplete truth. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we need to hold them accountable. That needs to to be something that um, we as other Christians need to speak up and say, no, that does not accurately represent uh, Christianity because Christianity is not monolithic. Um, and that it's just, it's just not. Uh, we you know we've got the Eastern Orthodox, we've got the Catholics, we we've got the Protestants, we've got twenty eight different flavors of Protestantism. I, we've got you know certain um, religions that are calling themselves Christians are definitely not because they don't even conform to the basic tenets of Christianity. Um, so, it, be honest is all I'm saying. Just be yeah. honest. Yeah. Well, and it it's it's like the uh, yeah, I'm I'm listening back through uh, Dr. Heiser's podcast. So I'm I'm back on one of his episodes uh, yesterday. I listened to one where he was talking about like how we got the Old Testament. And he talks about how, you know, this, this X-File, what he calls the X-Files view of inspiration, mm-hmm. that God just either straight up came down and dictated something, or that he, you know, people went in the trance and didn't know what they were writing, or, or right. some kind of uh, idea like that, um, that, that that actually has done more to harm people's faith than, Absolutely. And, and make us vulnerable to skepticism than just being mm-hmm. honest about how we got the text. And, um, uh, yeah. and, and I got to say, I, one of the things I really, you know, what, and this is not, I mean, this, this, this is not like a litmus test, but one of the things I can definitely tell is like, anytime somebody is teaching me something and it makes me more confident about 
the biblical text. <laughs> right. That uh, kind of, in my mind, is kind of a bit of a reassurance that, hey, that this person might be onto something, or this might be the truth. And um, but there's a lot of people that they'll say things I'm like, I don't know. It doesn't. It doesn't seem to reinforce uh, the the truth about the Bible. But but my original yeah. point was was just this idea that you know uh, if you're if you're going to use the like you were talking about the quick fix thing, like the Book of Revelation, um, to do a quick fix justification of your politics or your worldview, um, but you never talk to me about the rest of the Bible. Right. I, I'm skeptical oh gosh, of yes. your. I'm skeptical of your sources. And what are you even? And what are you even doing, being concerned about the Book of Revelation if you're not concerned about the rest of the Bible? Absolutely. Yeah, that's a really good point because I I hear you. <laughs> I hear you. Because oh, I I've seen those people who've just gotten so caught up in Revelation they have no idea what the gospel is about. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And then they get it wrong because everything's the mark of the beast. You right. Know, they get it wrong. Everything's the mark the of the beast. Card, uh, <laughs> that and they spent like 28, they, 28 and that, different marks of the beast since I've been alive. Oh, I know. It's like, this is my, like my fifth apocalypse <laughs> I live, I've lived through. Um, but the, um, the, the other thing that drives me nuts about it is, is they, they also, these people also are the ones who tend to, to spend all their time trying to work against the 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 prophecies like oh we've right? got to delay this i'm like why are we delaying this if this is what happens before jesus comes I'm like bring it on i'm like let's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i don't know about you but i would like to meet him um so. <laughs> I'm tired jesus show up already <laughs> so i mean i'm not suicidal don't take that out of context right. I am. <laughs> but if he decides to show up today i'm not going to be upset <laughs> Right. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm very, you know, excited about uh, his kingdom and the new creation. I think those things are going to be super cool. And uh, right. if, if I see prophecy getting fulfilled, it's like, oh, man, is it possible we might be in for hard times? Absolutely. No one's exempt from hard times, by the way. Um, but what? these are signs that Jesus is coming back. I mean, praise the Lord. I've got friends on Come Facebook. On Their lives look perfect. Okay, sorry. Um <laughs> Yeah, you and I both need more sleep. That's what's yeah. happening. Yeah. Um, you got to remember, some of our friends grumpy. don't have better lives, just better cameras. Um. Of course, I I have this theory that you and I were like born grumpy old men. Like we we just started out that way. So oh yeah, anyhow. like my like all my friends in college are like, how are you already like sixty? I'm like, I don't. <laughs> Because we did, and never mind. We're just okay. So anyway, so this, this I want to I want to address something else that um is a common um. I, well, I say common. I've heard it. Let's put it this way. Um, I I have called God's manifest presence, uh, in the temple, this cloud, uh, the Shekinah glory, and I have actually come across critiques online where their people have said, "Do not use that word. It's not in the Bible." Okay. I, I want to address this up front because before I get into the rest of the conversation, I want to have a quick, easy handle of what to call this thing, this this cloud, this this revelation of God's glory. I, I want to have a tidy label. And I like the word Shekinah, okay? It's just a fun word to say. Say it five times out loud. 
you're going to realize it's a fun word to say. Um, yeah, and if you're in the so, South, there's about seven different pronunciations. Exactly. And so, um, first of all, let's acknowledge that the critics are right. Absolutely right. You are not going to find this in the Bible. It is not there. It's just, it, it's not. But you know what? Neither is the word Trinity. So, um, so why should we or should we not use this word? So, first of all, let's look at the word. The word is built on the Hebrew word shakan, which means to, um, to dwell or to reside. So it has this idea, one of the uh, other translation is to, to neighbor. It's this idea of being close. This is where you live. And so we, we hear this word in the, um, even in the Hebrew name for the tabernacle. tabernacle. So the, the word is shakan. The, the um, tabernacle is the mishkan. So, I mean, you don't have to be a Hebrew expert to, to see it. Uh, mishkan actually means to dwell with. Um, but then we also have this word in several other places, like Exodus 25, 8. It says, and let, me, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell. And that's, again, um, that's Veshekanati, uh, in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle, the Hamashkan. So uh, all the furniture, so you shall make it. Exodus 29, 45, and 46 has this lovely statement about God's intent to dwell among his people so that they would know he is the Lord. God, look that up. That's Exodus 29, 45, and 46. Just read that. I mean, that's one of those verses that is worth dwelling on, like taking some time to just think about. And we, we first find this book, uh, this word in the Targums, uh, specifically in the Targum uh, Anacleus, which, and there's some debate on when this was written. It was either 1 um, CE or up to 3 CE. Uh, that kind of covers all the potential timeline for when it could be written. But what, um, what Jonathan Anacleus did was to insert the word Shekinah in these verses where we find this, this description of dwelling. So he rewrote uh, Exodus 25, 8, and it says, And let them make me a sanctuary, and I shall cause my Shekinah to dwell among them. So Ephraim Erbach, uh, he, sorry, he wrote this amazing book. Uh, if you want to get into any kind of study of Judaism over the ages, it's called The Sages. Show it to you there. Uh, fabulous, fabulous book. He sa- argues that Jonathan only did this because it was already accepted vernacular. That was already accepted language for, to designate God's presence in the tabernacle and other places. So real quick for people who don't know what Targums are. Uh, targums are Aramaic translations of the Bible. Um, they were already in use, or I should say the Tanakh, the, specifically the Old Testament. They're already in use prior to the first century. We found them at Qumran. We know they're there. There's at least one, the Targum on Jonah. Uh, it's likely that Matthew utilized a Targum um, in writing Matthew chapter 2, where he quotes, um, uh, of talking about Rachel. That's Matthew chapter 2, verse 10. Um, and I resisted jumping into some uh, papers that talked about whether or not Jesus targumed the text. Um, but the, the targums don't just, um, don't just translate the text. They actually offer some clarifying remarks, a little bit of commentary. There's some tweaking to make it a little bit more understandable. Um, 
And since Aramaic was the primary language at this time, it was these were the most read texts. These are the most utilized texts by even Hebrews at this point in time. Not only did they clarify Hebrew ideas for the readers, they also helped form Hebrew ideology about what was being said in the Bible. And so it would make sense that Inoculus would use the the vernacular of his day to emphasize the, both the presence and the transcendence of God. And so, uh, you know, God is being manifest in the sacred space. What do we do with this? Guys, this would have been a very uncomfortable thought for a traditional Jewish uh, worshiper. God is distant. God is holy. God does not dwell among us now. He did the time past, but we're so sinful and we've messed up so much. God doesn't want anything to do with our humanity would have been the mindset. So the fact that God can, can be manifest, can actually dwell in this place, it, it, it's, it's a crazy idea. It, it's an earth shattering idea. And so um, when we go back and we read Genesis and we read it as a temple account, and we see that this is God's plan and intention to create a space where humanity and God can actually function and work together and be in union as one, that this is what he wanted from the beginning, that the temple and the tabernacle both affirm that this is an ongoing desire. It didn't stop at the fall. It didn't end whenever Adam and Eve screwed up. It's still what God wants. And then uh, we see it continuing even forward with Jesus in John 1.14, and this is from Dr. Young's Hebrew Heritage Translation. You can get this uh, from his website. Um, just look up Dr. Young's Hebrew Heritage. Really good, uh, and it, it, he explains the translation process, but he, he kind of explains the Hebrew idioms that are found within the Greek. And so um, he translates it this way. It says, so the word became flesh and encamped among us. And then parenthetically, he says, as a temporary shelter, we saw his majesty such a sublime glory as belonging to only the son of the father, full of grace and truth. So Dr. Young chooses to translate um, uh, this word, eskenosin, uh, as encamped, as in temporary dwelling or temporary shelter, because John actually uses the same word that the Septuagint used in regards to the temple, the tabernacle, because another proposed translation that Dr. Young doesn't use here is he tabernacled among us. And so, of course, if we look forward to Revelation 21, 3, it says, behold, the dwelling, skeno, uh, of God is with man and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. I mean, that's almost a direct quote of that verse in Exodus 25. So, um, you know, we, the next passage in Revelation goes on to describe this radiant, bejeweled Jerusalem that where God dwells and where we're going to witness him and where God gives off the light and the lamp is the lamb. And so there's this, this amazing idea of God dwelling with people and how that dwelling with people results in light. It results in in his the tangible uh, ability to to perceive his presence, and, and that he he ceases to be somewhere out there. He is actually there. So the what happened is the rabbis um, they were trying to come up with a term 
that at once celebrated God's presence, but also underscored the fact that he still is holy and above humanity. So how do you do this? And so that's where the discussions really take off. And I'm, I'm going to, to put a semicolon right there because we're going to stop before we get into explaining how this, this word Shekinah helps do that. We're going to look at what the word that the, the text used, and that's cloud. And we're going to talk about where it's used, how it's used. And we're going to discuss why it's important that the cloud imagery is, um, is part of how God presents himself. Mm-hmm. And so I don't want to get too far afield because there's part of this that I know, well, you're just going to flip whenever we, we get into part of this discussion because it, it's amazing. Uh, and uh, answers a lot of questions about early Christianity and the, some of the discussions that happened in the early church. Okay. So anyway. Well, I'm yeah, really curious to, to see where we go. And uh, <laughs> I'm glad that we're moving beyond some of the architecture. Um, as interesting as those things were, I think we had like, you know, half a season I love or that something. Stuff. No, um, <laughs> no it, it was interesting. It was good to hear a little more detail because, um, a lot of times you just kind of have this image, this, I, I feel like we really did a decent job of, dis- or you did a, a decent job of, of describing it. So we kind of have a feel for how things were and where things were. And as opposed to just this anomalous collection of ideas. Um, well, the scope, I mean, I think that's the, for me, that was the big thing, the scope. We, we, we don't get it because we don't have anything to compare it to. And so that, that's why I want to bring back to people that this, that it really was an event that God had to sponsor and God had to, you know, directly be involved with if people weren't going to die in mass creating this thing. Yep. So yep. Absolutely. Well, yeah, no, it's it's going to be cool. Uh, so anyway, I'm looking forward to hearing from it. Hopefully everyone out there is. And uh, if you want to be part of the conversation, Raven Creek SC is the website. Raven Creek SC uh, is the social media handle. Um, come find us. If you can work the Google, you can find us. And uh, we'll, we'll be looking forward to being part of the conversation. And we'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Faith and Other Oddities podcast, a Raven Creek Social Club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash ravencreeksc. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week.